This is a Federal News Network podcast. The policy against use of certain Chinese-made telecommunications hardware is starting to have what you might call unintended consequences. Consequences that some observers warned about when the rules came out last August. Just one of the stories in this week's DOD Reporter's Notebook by Federal News Network reporters Jared Serbu and Scott Massioni. And Jared, we'll start with you. The unintended consequences of the Chinese telecom ban starting to come home now. What are you finding? So, yeah, I mean, remember we talked about this, and I know you've talked with several experts going back to August when this when this rule first took effect. And what we're talking about here is the second phase of the implementation of what's called Section 889, the so-called Part B. And this is the section that not only told companies they couldn't sell gear from Huawei and ZTE and other companies to the federal government, they also couldn't have it on their networks their own networks, if those networks were going to in any way, shape, or form be part of the performance of a federal contract. What some companies are finding, the Professional Services Council tells us, is that agencies are interpreting that requirement, banning the use of that equipment, to also extend to to the networks of internet service providers and phone companies that you as a contractor just happen to be using. Now, that's not so much of a problem here in the United States, because there's not a whole lot of Chinese telecom gear on U.S domestic networks, but it's a potentially a huge problem if you're doing business in, let's say, Egypt or Ethiopia, where the government monopoly telecom networks are based entirely on Chinese telecommunications equipment because the Chinese government and Chinese companies set up those networks for those countries essentially for free so that they could get a foothold with their equipment into those networks. And what we're being told by PSC is these companies are finding that they're having to get there. There is a waiver process that they can work through on a USAID or State Department or DOD contract, but each one of those takes four to six weeks to get through all the wickets, and it's only one contract at a time. In other words, you cannot, as a company, get a waiver across all of your government contracts. you got to do it on a contract-by-contract basis, so it's setting each one of these back by four to six weeks. So it sounds like some sort of streamlined process is really needed to get after these where you have similar situations across many contracts or it could really back up pretty badly. It certainly could, and that is something they absolutely could address in the final rule. Remember, they implemented this with an interim rule with just two weeks' notice to industry, which is, you know, again, why, why you may not want to do that sort of thing because you do potentially run into unintended consequences if you don't go through a notice and comment period completely before you start implementing something like this. But yes, they could address it in the final rule. Another potential for relief here is that the, the existing rule in the legislation gives the Director of National Intelligence the authority to issue a more blanket waiver for an entire company in, in a given situation. But the concern PSC has over that is there's just simply not enough contracting officers and other experts within ODNI to go through all of this paperwork and, and process it. And in any case, that authority is really only temporary. It, it, it extends those waivers for, I, I think it's a year or two, but they are by, by no means permanent. All right, go keep an eye on it. And Scott, you have been writing about something totally different, and that's the Air Force's innovation-focused procurement shop. They've been in business a couple of years now. Lots of contracts, lots of dollars have come out of there. Now there's a report card on the whole operation. And what did that find? That's right. By way of introduction, AFWorks is the larger uh, organization about this. It's really everything in the Air Force that goes toward innovation. It's broken into three branches, AFVentures, Spark, and Prime. So AFVentures is the one that we're mostly focusing on. And the way that it works is it just goes out into industry and tries to find basically all of the 
technologies that the military could be using, but it's not using right now, or how they can maybe change it to use better for the military, something that's already out there commercially. What they've done, according to this report card, and they've only been, like you said, in uh, existence for about two years, is they've, is they've casted a very large net. They've awarded 2,300 small business contracts, totaling more than $70 million, $700 million over the past two years. That's pretty exciting for them because what they're trying to do is bring more companies into the fold of the military and make sure they're not afraid of working with the military. And where they've been really investing this money is in artificial intelligence, IT, airspace, robotics, virtual reality, all those places where the Air Force is taking its weapons into the future. Now, the big question is, is that, you know, these are 2,300 contracts, right? Each one of them is about $50,000. It's not a lot of money. You're not bringing a lot of things in necessarily yet. They're small bets on companies for short-term concepts. They're really just to test the feasibility of those concepts and see if they can be helpful to the Air Force. But some of them have also translated into uh, something that's, that pays off a little bit more. A good chunk of them, about 500, have gone into phase two, which is where AF Ventures gives them $750,000 for prototyping and development. And that's, con that's already uh, translated into $1.4 billion in contracts that are not through you know, some sort of seed money or something like that. So is it safe to say that the AF Ventures spends most of its initial money using other transaction authority, and then when you get into the billion-level dollars, then it would translate over to regular procurements? Yeah, basically. What they use is something called the Small Business Innovative Research Contract. It, it works very similarly in, fa in the way that they just court these smaller businesses. And also, Scott, switching to the Army, you are writing about the Army reinforcing the need to encompass space, cyber, air, all of these domains – Boots on the ground means a lot more than it did then, right? Yeah. yeah. So the uh, Army has been sort of teasing this new uh, strategy for a couple of weeks now. And what it does is it really just reinforces the need for cyber, air, uh, space, all to be combined uh, to rebuff the powers like China, Russia in the next 15 years. So this takes the Army into basically 2035, and it builds upon what's already been done by Army Futures Command. And uh, what they're hoping to do is basically make sure what they've been saying they want to do, uh, create this sort of JADC2 situation, Joint All Domain Command and Control, where someone can go into an area, they will have all the information that they need, they can have the air power that they need within an environment that is hostile to them, and they want to do this all so that they can make decisions faster, they can use the, the weapons that they want to use of the future, and that they can function in a high-powered, near-peer situation. And this doesn't change anything with respect to their brigade structure? No, nothing's really changing in that sense. Now, what it will do is, is create what are called multi-domain task forces. And these are task forces that are hybrids between maybe your regular field artillery brigade and intelligence information, cyber, electronic warfare, and space elements. And that's really just to, to bring all of that together for these new sorts of weapons that the Army wants to invest in. And Jared, we couldn't have a DOD conversation for very long without talking about the cloud. And you're finding that the Pentagon is finding that even though they are reducing that data center footprint, they're finding some things need to stay in data centers and not the CLOUD. 
Yeah, and at the same time, this move toward the cloud that really has accelerated in DoD over the past few years really does also seem to have accelerated data center consolidation in a big way. So according to John Sherman, the acting DoD chief information officer, DoD has now re uh, reduced its overall data center footprint from a total of 3,000 back when the whole data center consolidation initiative started, uh, down from 3,000 to about 1,500 now, and thinks it'll get down to about 250 quote, in the next few years, which is really huge. As to your point, it's unclear how much smaller that footprint is going to get below that 250, because another point that Sherman makes is they've done a whole lot of analysis at this point over the past few years on on the extent of, of work that would be needed to rationalize an application to move to the cloud. And in a whole bunch of cases, it just doesn't make any financial sense. Uh, it would actually cost more than you would save, especially if it's an application that's due to sunset soon or the refactoring work would just be too much. So there's going to be a lot of things that live in what he calls purgatory, uh, the DISA core data centers, for an indefinite period of time. And I say indefinite because DOD really does have a track record of saying, we're going to sunset this legacy system any day now, and you turn around 10 years later and it's still there. So I think we're going to have some number of data centers still owned by the, still owned by the Defense Department for some number of years, but 250 is a lot less than 3,000. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni check out their latest DOD Reporter's Notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over two million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, 
we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all, but is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.